Welcome to On Script's Biblical World, a podcast exploring the history, archaeology, geography, and cultures of the Bible. Visit us at onscript.study slash biblicalworld. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Biblical World Podcast. This is Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. We are doing a series now on the Epic of Gilgamesh. This is the first in that series and we'll be releasing several episodes as long as it takes, I guess, to get through this monumentally important story with massive implications for how we read the Bible and how we think about the relationship between scripture and uh, ancient texts. And so we hope you enjoy this journey and uh, ins- gain some insights along the way. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can go to onscript.study forward slash donate or give us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. We appreciate all that, but most of all, uh, we hope that this inspires you to dig into ancient texts in, uh, that relate to the world of Scripture. So enjoy the episode. Welcome back, Biblical World listeners. This is Chris McKinney, uh, your host. I've been your host in the past, and you might remember my voice, but it's been a while. Uh, it's been a very busy summer. I've been excavating in Israel I've been traveling to Turkey and Greece for the first time, and plus doing a lot of stuff related to our documentary film that we're producing about the about the Ark of the Covenant. But I'm very excited to get back in the saddle, as it were, and get back on the Biblical World podcast to dive into these stories and these contexts that you all, and I do, love so well. Today, we are starting a new series on the Epic of Gilgamesh, and thinking about the Epic of Gilgamesh and how it relates to the biblical story. I am joined today by Amy, uh, who you've seen over the last, or you've heard over the last few uh, few podcasts. She's been doing some great work on here, and of course, her specialty has been looking at uh, some of these backgrounds. And uh, so, Amy, I'm excited to hear about what we're going to look at today, the Epic of Gilgamesh. Can you give us some background to it? Oh, yes. I've I've always loved this story and um, used to have the privilege of teaching it when I was teaching in the physical classroom. Um, so I've come to know some of the the layers of it over time and just through my own you know personal affection for it and connection to it have uh, come to actually start spending more academic time with it. Um, I think like most people, I came to hear about it through the final big tablet that we have, um, which is tablet 11, has a story that parallels Noah's flood. And so that's how it became famous when it was first discovered. That was the first part of the epic that was found. Um, And so people were really excited about that. Um, But over time, we found more and more pieces of it. And it really is, uh, it turns out, it's at least a 12-tablet story. Um, So that flood story is just one small piece. Um, But it's a much bigger narrative, essentially about kind of what it means to be a human in the world and to go through struggles and to need to mature. Um, And so I think it speaks to us still, you know, across space and time. And so I think that's a really important part of its longevity, right? And why we're still reading it and teaching it today. Yeah. I I think one of the things that when I've read Gilgamesh and I I haven't, I mean, I've read it all throughout. It's not one of those things that you're, you know, you're doing your devotionals out of, um, but it is that type of text that when you come back to it, it, it's just so powerful. And as one of the things we can talk about it from an archaeological perspective is not only was it powerful for those who lived in the area of Mesopotamia, 
but it's been found all throughout the ancient Near East. Mm -hmm. I mean, we have tablets of this, you know, as you said, they're first found in Nineveh in the, you know, the, the palace and library of Ashurbanipal, who dates to the seventh century. But we have tablets of this found at Megiddo. We have it found in the capital of uh, the Hittites. And there's even the likely suggestion that much of what we have in uh, Greek mythology, much of it could have been inspired by this story. Um, there's a book called uh, From Hittite to Homer, which imagines and sees the mythology that we have in Hittite myth being influenced by Gilgamesh in this wonderful story and being being brought to the you know the great Greek myths that we know and love. And so it's just such a, a powerful story. And I think what's so cool about it to me is not just when we talk about its connection with the flood and its possible connections with the Bible, is that it both has the air of being connected with a real place, Uruk, and the places that uh, Enkidu and Gilgamesh visit on their travels, and it's very much kind of like almost a, a buddy cop <laughs> kind of story uh, of Enkidu and Gilgamesh. So you can experience those landscapes, and if you know them, like the, the, the trees of Lebanon and the mountains of Lebanon or Uruk, uh, most of us don't know it because it's very hard to visit today, but if you've seen it in, through videos or pictures, you can really visualize it, but even if you don't, even if you don't know it, and certainly the people who consumed this literature uh, throughout the ancient Near East didn't necessarily know what mighty Uruk was, and they were still so influenced by it and so intrigued by this epic, great, uh, great story. And so it just has so many wonderful things uh, to teach us, as Amy was saying, about the, about the human condition, but it's just a great piece of literature. Uh, and so I, I'm excited to, to, to dive into it. Yeah, so am I. And it's, it's a very classical piece of literature in terms of its story arc as well. Like you have this big climax in the middle, um, you know, and it kind of like builds up to that and then comes down from that. You know, there's a good character transformation. Um, there's, it's kind of a treatise on grief at a certain level. Um, and just kind of the, the changes that a person goes through when they lose someone close to them. There's an element of guilt, right? There's even an element of ecological destruction that I think speaks really loudly today. And so there's just, you know, the more time you spend with it, like you said, um, and, and this goes, of course, for the Bible as well. It's like, you know, the more you read these stories, the more layers there are. And one of the pieces that's magical about this epic is that there are a lot of breaks in the text and just information, you know, words that we don't have because of history, right? Um, and how archaeology works. But still, you can still have this connection to it, even with the missing information. Yeah, that's, that's right. And I would even go on, and as we think about this text, it's also a good comparison to think of it well, alongside the Bible itself, not only in terms of, you know, the Bible tells a lot of good stories. If, you, if you've listened to this podcast at all, you know that's, that's my opinion. I mean, the story of, of David and his rise to the throne of Judah is an incredible story. It's extremely well told. It has plot devices. It has this heroic sword of Goliath and things like this. And Gilgamesh has all of these things as well. And so there's a there's a level of comparison that one can read in Gilgamesh to really any epic stories, and the Bible's right alongside there. But there's also this point of comparison 
that we can talk about with the canonization process, that the Epic of Gilgamesh goes through several stages of people considering it to be a standardized text. Now, our last version that we have of it, the version that is mostly uh, mostly cited, is the one that comes down to us through Ashurbanipal in the 7th century, but we have older tablets uh, that have slight different variations. Now, mm-hmm. the biggest problem is, is that we don't have entire sets of all the different editions. Uh, we do have some overlap, but it's not like we can just go to our library and pull out all of the old Babylonian one that dates to you know the 1700s and then go to the one that dates to the uh, 7th century. Uh, Assyriologists are forced to try and figure out what the text might have read in its original based upon the different tablets that have come down to us and, and existed, and even, in, as I said earlier, in other languages. So one of the really interesting things, if, if we think of the story of Gilgamesh as a kind of parallel to the canonizing of the Bible, we actually have a long transmission history where we have Gilgamesh, or maybe even in the earliest sources like the Sumerian king list, he may have been actually called Bilgamesh, and he could have very well been uh, a historical king that lived sometime in the middle of the third millennium BC um, that evolves and develops over time into the story that we have. And so if we want to think of the the idea of, of canon becoming much more standardized over time and as it's told and rewritten, Gilgamesh is perhaps the best example of this uh, in the ancient Near East. Yeah, that's a great point to bring up is that there's a historical parallel there. And so when we're talking about important texts kind of becoming even more and more important over time, like, right, this wasn't just a bestseller from one, if there was such a thing in the ancient world, um, for one moment in history, you know, between the oldest tablets, which are from the old Babylonian period between, you know, 2000 and 1600 BCE, um, and the standardization in the seventh century, you have about a thousand years. And, you know, we tend to be kind of short in our thinking uh, these days, um, but a thousand years is a long time for a story to be around. And that's really when it kind of reaches its peak, right? Because it's standardized across tablets. Um, and and that's a really fascinating thing to think about, uh, that a story would have such cultural longevity and that we see multiple versions of this, right? Like you said, with the Bible. Um, and then there's also a bit of what I call, in, like in the prologue, um, there's almost like an argument for writing um, that we'll get to, because um, ultimately it's only through writing that these stories come down to us. And so the narrator of the story is very clear that writing is important. <laughs> and so that's kind of a natural thing for a scribe to want to argue, right? But I think that is an important point to take away as well, that like writing and literacy is, is very important to this project, because otherwise we don't have what we have. Yeah, I think that's a good point too, and we'll we'll get into it when we talk about kind of that frame aspect of, you know, there's almost like a, I don't want to give away too much, because if you haven't read Gilgamesh, you know, it's a really surprise, but there's really a, like a, a physicality to not just the story and understanding the things that are in Enkidu and Gilgamesh's hands, but the tablets themselves. I mean, there's there's a sense, in, like you said, of of the writing process of how this was important to have written down, which has some similarity, of course, in the in the biblical story. We could think of 
the Ten Commandments, or think of of in Exodus where we have the the writing of the law and the establishment of the law. But there is kind of a difference there too, where much of what we have in the biblical story is passed down orally, and certainly. Some of these stories in Mesopotamia would have been oral and, 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 and told throughout all these different types of traditions. On that point, I think that's, that's really worth, worth making, is not only is Gilgamesh the best epic story of the period of time uh, that it happened in, that it, was, that it was received in, but it actually also includes the most well-known story of them all within it. Uh, and so it's kind of like these two great stories. Uh, the the ancient scribes couldn't help but bring these two stories together. This this flood story, of course, and and this is one of the things that I thought was was so intriguing. Um, there's a book by Irving Finkel, the the great uh, seriologist who works at the the British Museum, and he wrote a book called the the Ark Before Noah. But he talks about how well known the the story of the flood was. And how people just from their infancy knew about the Mesopotamian flood story. And so to bring that story in to this great epic story is just kind of a stroke of genius, actually, because it makes really this story, which is really, at the end of the day, about just this one guy. You know, he's an important king, maybe, but it's actually about his, his pursuit of immortality and what that really means. But it brings together all the things that people care about. And that's what I think is one of his geniuses. And I also recommend that Finkel book because it's just it's it's just a fun read uh, if you are like history at all. And it's very accessible to the public. So I feel like that is uh, a good n- narration of just, yeah, like you said, these flood stories and how important they were and how we came to know them um, and kind of the history of that. I mean, one of the things that happens when you you go from Bible and you start looking at the background of the Bible is that you find that the Bible is very much part of ancient literature. Sometimes I'm hesitant to say that I say that I study ancient Near Eastern literature and the Bible because it very much is ancient Near Eastern literature. But you you really don't know that until you kind of venture out beyond its pages and see what else is out there. And it's not to say like, oh, it's just like everything else, um, because no no two pieces of literature are the same. But you definitely see common motifs, um, sometimes common vocabulary, depending on the language of the day, even scenes, right? So you're talking about like David, I'm assuming you're alluding to his his partnership with Jonathan, right? And Jonathan is essentially um, David's Enkidu, right? Right. right? He's going to become um, kind of his his partner in his, in his travels and his warring and all the things that he does um, and not, not to give anything away, but of course, like, you know, they lose each other. Um, and that's an important moment for David. So, so yeah, just these very human stories, right? Right. Yeah. I, I would say the same. And the, the interesting level that I find through it is, is one, as you, as you pointed out, is the connection you can point to throughout the ancient Near East, how maybe we can always talk or think about aspects of influence, like to think about Jonathan and, and David for a second and Gilgamesh and Enkidu. Uh, the question is, is, is one influencing the other or is this just the types of stories that are good ontologically for humans and told a certain way in the wider context of the ancient Near East? And if so, figuring out what you're going to decide, does it go with influence or not influence? Where do those differences lie? And we'll save that for you know a different time. But I do want to point out 
uh, one that I think very clearly does have influence. And I'm not going to talk about it in too much depth, but the big one, of course, is the connection between the flood story that we have in Gilgamesh and the flood story we have in Genesis, which I would, again, highly recommend, as Amy just did, the book by Irving Finkel, The Ark Before Noah. It's just a, it's a fantastic read. And I would just point out that there is obviously a uh, connection between the stories of Mesopotamia and what we have in Genesis 6 through 9. And the big difference, though, is the moral component of what you read in Genesis as compared to the Mesopotamian uh, flood stories. Like, the part that matters the most to the story, the motivating factor of the characters, is different. But that only way that works in the story, the only way that really works in the story, is that you assume that you know both the the story that's being told in Genesis and the backstory. Like there's a there's an expectation that's set up that of course everybody knows how this story ends, right? Um, and and that you turn it on its head. And again, I'm talking a bit obliquely about this because I don't want to really go into it yet. But I I think that this is sort of getting us uh, the background to how we're going to approach Gilgamesh. It's going to always be the question of. Is this just a good story, uh, a buddy adventure story that could be told in Greek mythology or told in the American West or told in Israel? Uh, or is there a direct relationship between what Gilgamesh has and the Bible? Uh, or is it somewhere in between those two things? And I think for, for us, as especially this podcast, as people that are interested in the wider biblical world, that's a very interesting question to think about and to see how these cultures could have both intermingled, but also that they're both just kind of existing in that underneath matrix from which both civilizations emerged from, the civilization of ancient Israel and the civilization of ancient Sumer and, uh, and Babylon. I think you know, and some of our listeners might, I'm a, a total nerd when it comes to comparative method. Um, so that's like my specialization when it comes to to methodology. And um, those are all like great questions to bring up because the question of influence is a really iffy one, right? Because it's really rare that you can actually sit down and prove that this text is playing with that text and knows it in depth, right? And then you get into issues of like, would anyone actually have access to those tablets to be able to do that kind of work and all that stuff? And so it really kind of comes down to like certain stories and motifs are popular, right? And because we're human, we connect with them. Um, and so like if there's, you know, Gilgamesh stories floating around and we do have some indications of that, like you mentioned, um, the, the flood tablet being found at Megiddo, you know, like why not? Why wouldn't people know some of these stories, at least in their bare bones? And um, but as we get into the story, I think we'll find that just, you know, some of these layers of the story, it's like, well, why not repeat that in your own culture? Right. Like that's a good story. Right? That's something we experience. And so there's this kind of blend of like cultural influence and just what's human, right? Like what comes naturally to us and the things that we go through. And, you know, maybe each culture has its iteration of that. You know, like like every culture has its own creation story, for instance. But they're each also culturally determined as well. So there's a lot of things to, to get into there, but we're I think we're on the right track. We're on the same page together with this. We, we are on the same page. I would just add one last thing before we, before we dive in. As someone who has a, an abiding interest, interest in mythology, 
and also that includes modern uh, mythologies like the Lord of the Rings, Legendarium, and especially C.S. Lewis and, and J.R.R. Tolkien's view of mythology. What I would say is those uh, amazing Oxford dons, inklings, connected very much with, with Norse myth, with Greek myth, and were inspired by these, these great stories that they were specialists in to write what we've come to love as, uh, as modern classics, the Chronicles of Narnia, the Lord of the Rings, and, and, and the wide range of things that are connected with that. What I am excited about uh, is, of course, the things that they were interested in as a, as, a, as a fan of that literature, as someone who's inspired by it. But I think what we can do is actually take the same approach to an area that they weren't expert in, which would be the mythologies that we find in the ancient Near East, uh, whether that's Egypt or Canaan, like we have in the Baal cycle, or the best of them all, at least in its recorded form, the area of Gilgamesh. And what you find in a story like this is the same types of things that you, that Lewis and Tolkien pointed out, that people are searching after the same types of questions. So for instance, and just and this is just a, you know, might be a selling point for reading Gilgamesh, all of the Lord of the Rings, and really the whole story of uh, Tolkien's legendarium, really is about death. It's about immortality and thinking about what that really means. You know, the, the sundering of the elves and, and men, uh, the, the marriage of Aragorn and Arwen and giving up immortality and life. All of these are the th- really powerful themes that is in, we might say, the, the most important IP right now, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, The Lord of the Rings, however you think about the Rings of Power, and I certainly have my own opinions about that, which I'll keep to myself for now. But those are exactly the themes that we find in Gilgamesh. And so what, I, what I'm excited about is if we think about this from a, you know, an ontological idea, from a human level idea that people in the civilization of Mesopotamia developed and created something so powerful and so meaningful. And we find the same themes all throughout these major classics of human literature, um, whether it's Gilgamesh, whether it is the Iliad, or it is the Lord of the Rings, because it's just so foundational. So mm-hmm. that's my last spiel. Let's dive in. All right. So uh, my last preface comment, I guess, would be that the the prologue is going to make this very obvious from the get-go, so I'm not really giving anything away. But the whole story becomes essentially a commentary on how a person gets wisdom despite their own intentions. <laughs> um, so if that isn't like a story of life, uh, I don't know what is, um, because Gilgamesh does not set out to become wise. He sets out to become immortal um, so he can have you know a foot up on people even more so than he already does. Um, but that gets squashed pretty soundly. Uh, and then wisdom is what he comes out with. So I think that's an overarching narrative that we could still use. So I guess uh, without further ado, um, would you like to read the first bit? Sure. I'm going to start with Tablet One, The Coming of Inkydu. And I'm reading from the Penguin Classic uh, edition by uh, Andrew George, translated by Andrew George. And I'm going to start with the first line. He who saw the deep, the country's foundation, who knew was wise in all matters, 
Gilgamesh, who saw the deep, the country's foundation, who knew, was wise in all matters. He everywhere, we have a break there, and learnt of everything, the sum of wisdom. He saw what was secret, discovered what was hidden. He brought back a tale of before the deluge. He came a far road, was weary, found peace, and set all his labors on a tablet of stone. He built the rampart of Uruk, the sheepfold, of holy Inanna, the sacred storehouse. See its wall like a strand of wool. View its parapet that none could copy. Take the stairway of a bygone era. Draw near to Inanna, seat of Ishtar, the goddess, that no later king could ever copy. Climb Uruk's wall and walk back and forth. Survey its foundations. Examine the brickwork. Were its bricks not fired in an oven? Did the seven sages not lay its foundations? A square mile is city, a square mile date grove, a square mile is clay pit, half a square mile the temple of Ishtar, three square miles and half is Uruk's expanse. See the tablet box of cedar, release its clasp of bronze, lift the lid of its secret, pick up the tablet of lapis lazuli and read out the travails of Gilgamesh, all that he went through. Surpassing all other kings, heroic in stature, brave scion of Uruk, wild bull on the rampage, going at the fore, he was the vanguard, going at the rear, one his comrades could trust. A mighty bank protecting his warriors, a violent flood wave smashing a stone wall, wild bull of Lugubanda, Gilgamesh, the perfect in strength, Suckling of the August wild cow, the goddess Ninsun, Gilgamesh the tall, magnificent, and terrible, who opened passes in the mountains, who dug wells on the slopes of the uplands, and crossed the ocean, the wide sea, to the sunrise, who scoured the world ever searching for life, and reached through sheer force Utnanipishti, the distant, who restored the cult centers destroyed by the deluge, and set in place for the people the rights of the cosmos. Who is there can rival his kingly standing and say, like Gilgamesh, it is I am the king. Gilgamesh was his name from the day he was born, two-thirds of him God and one-third human. It was the lady of the gods drew the form of his figure, while his build was perfected by divine nudimud. A triple cubit was his foot, half a rod his length, Six cubits was his stride. Then we have another break. Cubits, the front part of his blank. His cheek were bearded like those of a blank. The hair of his head grew thickly as barley. When he grew tall, his beauty was consummate. By earthly standards, he was most handsome. In Uruk the sheepfold, he walks back and forth like a wild bull lording it, head held aloft. He has no equal when his weapons are brandished. His companions are kept on their feet by his contests. The young men of Uruk he harries without warrant. Gilgamesh lets no son go free to his father. By day and by night his tyranny grows harsher. Gilgamesh, the guide of the teeming people. It is he who is shepherd of Uruk the sheepfold. But Gilgamesh lets no daughter go free to her mother. The women voiced their troubles to the goddess. They brought their complaint before them. 
Though powerful, preeminent, expert, and mighty, Gilgamesh lets no girl go free to her bridegroom. The warrior's daughter, the young man's bride, to their complaint the goddess paid heed. The god of the heavens, the lords of initiative, to the god Anu they speak. A savage, wild bull you have bred in Uruk the sheepfold. He has no equal when his weapons are brandished. His companions are kept on their feet by his contests. The young men of Uruk he harries without warrant. Gilgamesh lets no son go free to his father. By day and by night his tyranny grows harsher. Yet he is the shepherd of Uruk the sheepfold, Gilgamesh the guide of the teeming people. Though he is their shepherd and their protector, powerful, preeminent, expert, and mighty, Gilgamesh lets no girl go free to her bridegroom. The warrior's daughter, the young man's bride, to their complaint, the god Anu paid heed. There's a question about what happens next in the, in the tablets, but I'm going to skip ahead to the next line. Let them summon Aruru, the great one. She, it was, created them, mankind so numerous. Let her create the equal of Gilgamesh, one mighty in strength, and let him vie with him, so Uruk may be rested. I'm going to pause there and see if Amy has any comments about what we've read till now before we read about who the equal of Gilgamesh might be. Thank you, Chris. You have a good audiobook voice. I've listened to many. <laughs> I bet. So have I. Um, I. I listen to audiobooks when I walk my dogs every day, so it gets me through some stuff. So I guess the first comment from like a historical level is that the prologue, so you read through, I think about like line 95-ish. The first 28 lines was not original to the story, which I think is really interesting. So these are the lines that talk about how wise Gilgamesh is and kind of give you the tour of Uruk. Um, these were added at a later date. Um, and so I think that's really interesting because otherwise it just jumps right into this kind of hymnic description of Gilgamesh, right? Um, and then eventually this is going to turn downhill, right? Because we find out he's a tyrant uh, who takes brides captive and mistreats the men of the town, forcing them to like contest with him, um, even though he's a, literally a giant, right? He's this massive human-like person, but he's like two-thirds divine, which of course isn't fair to the rest of us. You know, it talks about his stride being six cubits, which is what, like nine feet or something like that? Yeah, Goliath height. Yeah, but like probably even more so, right? Like if his right. step is nine foot, like he's massive, right? Um, and it's clear that like nobody can contest him, um, but he goes around picking fights with these citizens anyway. Um, so we ultimately learn that he's like, he's physically great and he can be very protective over his city, which is what you want a good king to do. But ultimately he's, He's kind of bored and immature and doesn't really um, seem to care for his people. Yeah. You know, he mistreats them at, at every turn. And and the people are like, obviously not happy with this. And so they have to go to the gods about it. Right. What I find interesting about that is already from the beginning is you have this very non-normal person, mm -hmm. <laughs> like massive, two-thirds God, all those things. And yet... It's going to be a very human story. Like that's it's just such a an, an interesting way of starting this. It's the 
it's almost like you have in the in the beginning of this story that even the best among us the 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 ideal has to experience the things with everybody else that, that everyone else has to experience i did want to point out here at the beginning a couple of interesting points about a connection with gilgamesh and that's just in terms of place names now uruk does not appear all that much in the biblical story it appears in exactly two places it appears in the book of ezra uh, where we read about uh, the men of eric returning to eric is the biblical name and that's not such an interesting one it appears in connection with the men of susa the babylonians and the elamites and it says the rest of the nations whom the great and noble asnapar which most people think is the name uh, Ashurbanipal from uh, the seventh century, when it talks about deporting different people from Samaria and being able to return. So that's in Ezra chapter four. The much more relevant connection to the place of Uruk is in Genesis chapter 10, verses nine through 12, where we read about a character named uh, Nimrod. It says, he was a mighty hunter before Yahweh, Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before Yahweh, the beginning of his kingdom was Babylon, Erek, which would be Uruk, Akkad, and Kalne in the land of Shinar. Kalne, we're not really sure what that is. Could even be a, a different place or a textual critical problem. Shinar, uh, there's, I was like, uh, Amy, you won't get this unless you know some background. Uh, there's a very popular beer in Texas called Shiner. Oh yeah, and I always say it's not. It, it maybe maybe you've we seen have it, that all around Colorado uh, too. Oh, you have in Colorado, yeah. good. Yeah, so it's it, it's not that Shiner. Uh, <laughs> Shinar is is Sumer. It's the biblical name for for Sumer. So if you look at these these three names we have, and then being connected with the land of Sumer, they're big names. Babylon. Akkad, like Sargon of Akkad, and and Uruk, and we already see um, some potential connections with Nimrod and this Gilgamesh character. Nimrod, you know, at least in the Septuagint, seems to be more than a man, and so we won't dive into those here. But just to point out that this is not just on the fringes of the biblical story in terms of influence, Genesis ten. Uh, and the ongoing story that we read about in Genesis 11, the so-called Tower of Babel episode, which is really about a ziggurat in probably Babylon, uh, has it, it mentions this the, this very place that that Gilgamesh is said to have been king of, and the person who in the story in Genesis 10 seems to have been a, a king who ruled the southern part of Mesopotamia. And as you read the rest of the story, he goes to places like Nineveh and Kala. Uh, other places in northern part of Mesopotamia, so we can see a uh, a deliberate tie-in on the part of Genesis to bring us into that sphere. Again, this is one of those questions: Is this a direct influence from Gilgamesh, or is it just the big three? You know, these maze, these major cities like Uruk, Akkad, and Babylon. And we could even say, uh, if we were to go a couple chapters down the line to read Ur, Ur of the Chaldeans, you know, which is where Abraham comes from, which is in the same vicinity as, uh, as Uruk. But just to, just to point out, there's definitely a knowledge 
on the part of Genesis of this same place that Gilgamesh is set. Well, it's so fitting that it's also in Genesis 10, because that is kind of toward the end of what most scholars consider to be the mythic chapters of Genesis, being Genesis 1 through kind of halfway through 11, um, until we get to the genealogy of Abraham that's in there. So I think it really fits. Because, and it's also, you know, before the Tower of Babylon, as you mentioned, um, which of course is like an illustration of the fall of society when you think too large. It, it really, it's nestled nicely in there, right? And you wouldn't know it unless you know it, right? That there's this potential connection to this entire mythological world that sits behind some of those little narratives there. Absolutely. So tell us, tell us some more. Is there some more things you want to pull out from this from this section? Uh, maybe there's some names that we need to to bring out. Th- things like Inanna and uh, Ishtar. This is mm-hmm. the she's gonna she's gonna show up a lot <laughs> in this story. Um, in fact, some of the ones that come down the line are uh, we might <laughs> we might have to skip over some of the details uh, to keep our to keep our safe rating uh, for Apple. But there's there's a lot of things that I think are are worth pointing out here. Again, you you heard a few references to the deluge. Um, this is a reference, of course, to the flood, right? And this is a a connection back to the fact that he's going to go to the ends of the world to hear this tale from Utnapishtim, the flood hero, and he's going to bring back this tale. And, and so it's almost like saying here at the beginning, oh, that story that you know so well that everyone knows, that everyone tells— well, it was actually Gilgamesh who brought that story back to you. Uh, so he's not only this great king, uh, powerful king, doing as he pleases, but he's also this great tale giver. And in fact, uh, so he, you might even say he is the one who brings this uh, this tale from the end of the world. But as we'll see already, we have hints that he is involved in some way with the story that we're that was story that we're reading. Right. And it's not just that he brought it back, it's that he wrote it down when he got here. So there's also like that layer as well, where it's not completely dependent on oral tradition, even though it starts that way. Um, but the the idea of the deluge, I think, is really important here. And that's why it's brought up in even at, as early as the second stanza, right? And so as a reader, the, the prologue actually kind of gives away the ending. Um, and it's Fitting because this prologue is actually repeated verbatim at the very end of the story. And so you're kind of, you know, and I'll say more about it when we get to that tablet, but you're really at the end, you're sort of kicked back to the beginning of the story to think about the entire thing all over again, right? And to presumably want to reread it and to rehear it in the case of people who couldn't read. Um, But the opening lines are. I always get kind of stuck there because even the opening lines are very rich in terms of the mythological world that they prompt. Um, So even the opening phrase, he who saw the deep, which is repeated in line one and three, like that word deep um, in Akkadian, it's nakbu, N-A-Q-B-U for those of you who want to look things up. It's, it's, this really important place. So it can mean like totality. So it can mean like he saw everything, but it also refers to, and and more prominently refers to the kind of subterranean waters that we would consider like the source of springs. Right. Um, But mythologically that is where the God of wisdom resides. 
And his name is Ea, and we'll meet him throughout the text. Um, but even just saying like, he who saw the deep. So it's like literally the guy who goes to the subterranean waters where wisdom is born and is housed. And so it's like this very atmospheric start to the story, right? Like immediately there's this intrigue of like, because humans don't go there, right? This is not a place where humans go. Um, you might build your your town or your city on top of these waters, which is what the city of Babylon did, um, creating kind of this mythic quality to the city. Um, but nobody goes there, right? Um, so the fact that that's how the story starts is this guy went there <laughs> and like saw the whole thing. Uh, that's immediately drawing the audience in. And when we think of biblical parallels, we can't help but think of, you know, in the beginning, God being over the, the face of the waters. And there's um, the word there, Tehom, is not the same as Nakbu, um, but it's that, still that same idea of there's like there's a deep subterranean water out of which cool things emerge, right? Whether it's creation or wisdom, these waters are important for, for both of those things in both cultures. So we immediately kind of get this sense of like, okay, like I know what this literary space is. Like we're we're going to be in this realm where where interesting things are happening. Absolutely. And I, I think that for our audience, to it, it might be a stretch too far to think of the relationship between the Genesis story and this text, but it's so clear when you read these texts, or if you go back and read some of the, the other texts we could talk about, uh, in the Sumerian canon about the creation of the world and the, you know the character of Ea or Inki or Nudimud. He has you know these these three names who resides in this watery sphere. But the connection I would even go further and say we find this same this same world in the world of Ugarit. Uh, it's not exactly talked about in the same ways, but we have you know the springs and the waters that are beneath the the earth that are really similar to what we see both in the Bible and what we see in, in Mesopotamia. And you could even take it to Egypt, uh, that where they have a very similar uh, conception with, with some differences about how the, the nature of the world is and having this kind of waters below, waters beneath. Uh, I think a good point of comparison also is even to think about what we have in the, the second commandment, to not make for yourselves graven images in the earth, from the earth, from the heavens above, and the the waters below, the the, the beneath you, uh, we see this, of course, in the flood. You know, the waters gushing forth from beneath and from above. Uh, the the one thing that you know you, you you talk about there as this fount of wisdom. I mean, I'm going to keep coming back to not only the connections we can talk about as clear between uh, the direct correspondence between the texts. But and the ones that are more, let's say, implied or part of the same matrix. But it is interesting also that you have in Norse the idea that Odin, uh, who we owe uh, the, the day of Wednesday to, Wednesday, Odin's day, his eye, the one that's missing, resides in a deep well of water. Uh, so, and it's the well of wisdom, so that he can see all with his one eye. Uh, if you want to imagine Anthony Hopkins in a very different version of the Norse myth, but you have the same idea that this very important God of wisdom, God of uh, who is going to help humans, he needs to keep what, what's going on in the world, and the way he does it is to reside in this watery 
abyss. And so we can point to not only parallels between a kind of like similar cosmos, a similar uh, world between Israel and Mesopotamia and Egypt and, and Canaanites, but we can again point to this wider conception of how people think about these types of things. Uh, another point that I wanted to, to bring out, and Amy, I'm, I must suggest that <laughs> I don't think we're going to get to Inky too just quite, quite yet. But but another thing that I think is very powerful, and it should em- emerge f- immediately from a read read like this, is what Gilgamesh is called. He's called king. He's called preeminent. He's called powerful. But he's also called a shepherd. He's also called a shepherd. And this is another one of those connection points between. Uruk the king shepherd, and or I should say Gilgamesh the king shepherd, and we can talk about, of course, the kings of Israel being called the shepherd of Israel. We could even see the same thing in some instances with other kings from Mesopotamia. And so this is a, another nice connection between the stories. Yeah, and this is just, um, I mean, once you, like you said, once you dig into it, this first section is just so dense you know even if even if you knew of who all these gods and figures were right because this is such um it prefigures the story right in so many ways it gives away the ending but i think that kind of shifts our focus because if we know the ending of a story right if you think of any like film or book that you read that starts with the end and then kind of backtracks your question isn't then like, well, what happens to this guy ultimately? Your question is, how does he get there? Right? It becomes more about the journey than it and who's involved and what's involved than it does about the actual end game. And so I think it's like so genius that somebody was reading this or heard this and was like, you know, this really needs a prologue that ups the ante of the story. But it does a lot of work for us, right? It tells us like, who he's ultimately going to be. And then when we get into the story, we find out that like how big of a transformation this actually was. Like uh, you mentioned Aana, which is the the temple of Ishtar. And it, it mentions in here in the prologue um, around line 15 that he, he rebuilt it at some point and he does it to the point where nobody could copy it, right? Like it's so great, nobody could copy it. But by the middle of the story, we're going to learn that he's actually quite rude to Ishtar. And he's very destructive. <laughs> to, put it, to put it mildly. Uh, to put it mildly, uh, he's very rude to her. Uh, he's very uh, sexist toward her um, and, you know, all the things that you don't want to be as a person. So to kind of know at the beginning that he's ultimately going to give her like the best palace any being could ever give a god Um that's going to be important to the story, right? We're also being told about, we're going to talk about the deluge. Like it's kind of giving us the highlight reel of what the story is going to include, but it's also doing it in this like mythological way where we know he's going to become transformed um, because the wisdom that they're talking about here is not what he displays when we actually meet him. Um, So there's a bit of a dissonance there, right? Because like the two parts of the, the prologue don't agree. But ultimately, this is one of the cool things about the story too. It leaves us on a bit of a cliffhanger because it doesn't actually tell us what the wisdom is. It doesn't actually tell us that. And it may be because of breaks in the text. Um, and when we get to Utnapishtim, um, who's the guy who survives the flood, um, the parallel to Noah, when he's talking to Gilgamesh, there are a lot of breaks, right? So it may be that the wisdom was in that monologue, but we don't have that, right? So as it is, like we we need to look at who Gilgamesh becomes 
in order to understand what it is he learns. And I think that's that's also part of the life of the story, right? Because it requires us to work um, in ways that maybe we would like it just laid out for us, right? So we could just like kind of read what he learns and move on with our day. But it makes us do the work. And part of that work that he calls us to do is to climb the city walls and have a look around. Right. And you know, there's so many things. <laughs> I, I have I have three things. I have three things I want to make sure we get in here before we move on in our next episode to the next part of this tablet. And that is even just that line. You know, I'm forgetting the Psalm. I think it's Psalm 48, where it talks about walk in the ramparts of Zion, count its ramparts, see its ramparts, see that it is the Yahweh who protects the city. And so you have kind of the same idea of the physicality of experiencing the myth by reflecting on it and going to the place where it happened. And as I said earlier, even if you've never been to Uruk, or even if you've never been to Jerusalem in in Psalms language, you get this idea of, man, what it would be like to, uh, I think it's, I can't remember if it's Psalm 48 or Psalm 122. Um, what would it be like to, to stand in that presence and experience that? And so there's just a, just a, a clear reflection of, of an author trying to appeal to use his city in your imagination to put yourself with Gilgamesh as he is uh, walking around. Uh, another one that I think is very cool, and that is the, this, the status of the ideal king who's, you know, however tall, 50 feet tall, however, <laughs> however big he is, uh, that this also is what we can point out in, in Genesis. And we talked about, you know, Genesis 1 through 11, whether we're saying mythological in the sense of uh, didn't happen, or we're saying mythological in the sense of this is myth, this is the way myth works. Clearly in Genesis 6, where you have the gods, the sons of God, uh, sleeping with humankind, women, and creating this race that in Genesis 6 language is giants. In fact, that's a word that the Septuagint uh, uses, or the Nephilim in Hebrew. It does not have too high of an opinion about these Nephilim. In fact, they're one of the main reasons, if not the main reason, that we have the the deluge, the the, the flood that happens in Genesis' own story. And so what we're kind of coming to grips with in, and again, we're not necessarily saying Genesis 6 is reading guilt with Gilgamesh uh, in mind, but we're coming to this idea that in Mesopotamia, the ideal king is this massive character, tall, and it's a good thing to be a, a demigod. You know, it's a good thing to have some uh, connection with your lineage of of the gods. And which, by the way, uh, just as it is in Greek mythology, doesn't actually give you immortality, uh, because that's sort of the whole point of the story, is he doesn't have immortality. The The third thing that I, I'd like to point out as we, as we wrap this up, and I'll hand it back to you, Amy, is if we think about in the prologue, not just the, the names that it's throwing out, some of these may be f- unfamiliar to us, but they weren't unfamiliar to the people that were, that were reading this. It's really similar to, and, and I'm struck by its similarity after being in Greece and being in Turkey, to the, you might call it the, the cultural feel 
the environment of how particular cities take on the characteristics and culture of the particular god that is being worshipped there, whether it's Athens and its connections with uh, with Athena and her trials and competition with Poseidon. Now, it's not exactly the same expression. You know, the Parthenon is not a, a ziggurat like we have in Mesopotamia, but this idea of a, of a localized deity and the fact that these different deities have their own cultural influence and power within a specific city where they are worshipped and championed is a very interesting parallel between what we find in later well-known Greek mythology and what we have in this earlier, somewhat less known uh, Mesopotamian mythology. And so just for our audience, if we think of all of the great cities of Sumer and Babylon, you know, of Mesopotamia, uh, each god has their own chief city. And so within Uruk, within Ur, within these various places, they're going to have goddesses or gods and priests that are devoted particularly to that god or goddess's worship. For instance, in Ur, it was the, the moon god, um, uh, Sin. And so we have this all throughout, all throughout the story. For, for Babylon, it was, it was Marduk, uh, which is why he becomes the chief god of, of the Babylonians. And so it's just part of that cultural world that I think is important for us to imagine when we read the story. Yeah, and it's it's worth noting as well that um, you know for a long time these stanzas where he's inviting people to climb Uruk's walls and look around were really seen as him kind of toting his achievements in architecture and other things. But if you and, and this is a point that Andrew George makes in his commentary that if you keep going where it talks about a square mile as city, a square mile as date grove, a square mile as clay pit, half a square mile as the temple of Ishtar, that he. He isn't just encouraging you to look at his accomplishments, which is what old Gilgamesh would have done, right? The the prideful tyrant Gilgamesh was all about immortality and making a name for himself forever. Um, but what he's actually encouraging you to do is not just look at the city and its grandeur, but to look at what's going on inside of it. Um, so you have, you know, the city, of course, represents the inhabited space where people are living and bustling and going about their day, uh, where people are are being born and dying, you know, the whole life cycle. Um, when you talk about the date grove, you're talking about like the the peak of agriculture, right? And so dates were like a really important crop to have and, and somewhat difficult to have. And so this is like the peak of agriculture. And then when you look at the clay pit, that's representative of, of creative life because with clay, you can now write, you can build buildings and by making, you know, mortar and bricks, you can uh, have pottery, you know, all the things that kind of made civilization go around. And then of course you have, you know, the temple of Ishtar, which, you know, as the the goddess of the city, like that was the the connecting point between heaven and earth where you went to worship her. And again, like, you know, he was in, he's in conflict with her all throughout the story and they kind of come to this resolution apparently at some point, but there's just this, it's a turn, right? And so it's like, yes, I did all this cool stuff, but what's really important is what's happening within the, the, the town, right? Within the civilization, um, the things of life. And it really turns our attention to that. And then, of course, it closes the, the prologue by inviting you to read about these things. 
to come to the tablet box of cedar to release the clasp of bronze and to pull out the tablets that are inside. And these aren't just any tablets. These are tablets of lapis lazuli, which was a precious stone in the ancient world. So whenever you see lapis lazuli, like this is cluing you into the fact that this is a really important item that you're dealing with. And so for him to actually write on it, I don't know if you could actually physically write on it because it's a stone, right? It would be a lot of work, especially for a story this long, but there's still a symbolism there, right? That this is precious stuff. Um, and it's in this like really fancy box. Um, but it's also an ex a, a story that people could access, you know, whatever that meant, right? I mean, when you think of literacy, probably not really, but somebody could do it, right? Somebody could pull this out and, and read it. Yeah, absolutely. And every time I read this opening section, my thought is, man, how has no one made this into like a HBO, like what, what they did with Rome back, you know, 20 years ago? How has no one done that? And then I read the next, <laughs> the next tablet. And I understand why. Uh, and so maybe that will be our transition uh, to, to close this episode as we're thinking about uh, this story overall, uh, the Epic of Gilgamesh, its relationship to the wider biblical world. Uh, we've talked about a number of things in these opening 95 lines of Tablet One. In our next episode, we will finish Tablet One, uh, inshallah, hopefully, and then continue on through this amazing epic uh, that has really gripped the world uh, since its first appearance. Uh, Amy, any final words before we close off? Um, no, I mean, I have a lot to say about the prologue, but I think we'll, uh, we won't go this slow the whole time. <laughs> so we will eventually finish this series. I, I promise you all that. And, and we'll get there with uh, some insights and, and hopefully some some fun because it's, it's, it is a fun epic. And I really uh, am thankful for to Chris for having the idea of doing a series on Gilgamesh. Um, as you've picked up, it's a story near and dear to my heart. And I think uh, it's something that everyone will enjoy as we get into it. Wonderful. And until next time, Biblical World listeners, in the words of our other co-host, Kyle Keimer, keep on digging. You've been listening to OnScript's Biblical World podcast. If you enjoy this show, Please show your support by giving us a rating on iTunes or wherever you listen. You can support the show by visiting onscript.study/donate. Until next time, keep digging.